I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. No safe havens. Thousands of desperate evacuees were sheltering in hospitals in Gaza. Now they're being forced to flee again. We reach a nurse as he tries to shelter his own family from the bombs that won't stop falling. Together at last, after a terrifying period when they were trapped in Gaza, an Ontario man is reunited with his wife and finally gets to meet his newborn daughter for the first time. Powderful enemies, U.S. elections offices in several states received suspicious letters this week and some were filled with fentanyl. But our guest says she and her staff will not be intimidated. I guess you had to be there, but I'm glad I wasn't. An Australian police officer pleads guilty to pointing a gun at a colleague who threatened to spoil the new Top Gun movie, explaining that it was meant to be a joke. A bit of lights reading. As Diwali approaches, we bring you a new As It Happens reading, the story of a young girl's first Diwali in Canada. And it's as weird as the nose on its face. A scientist and his team suffered broken bones and a leech where a leech really should not be. To capture footage of a creature thought to be extinct, the strange and elusive long-beaked echidna. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that promises the beak is long, snouts honor. Palestinians are fleeing the largest medical center in Gaza in the wake of overnight explosions at the Al-Shifa hospital. Thousands of people had taken refuge there because of Israeli airstrikes in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Now they're on the move yet again, many of them to other hospitals that are already dealing with extreme overcrowding after a month of steady bombardment. According to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 4,500 children. And in testimony to a House panel yesterday, a senior Biden administration official said the actual number may be, quote, higher than is being cited, unquote. Mohammed al-Hawadri is a Palestinian nurse working with Doctors Without Borders out of the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. That's where we reached him. And I will warn you that you will hear the bombardment going on throughout this conversation. Mohammed, just tell us where you are right now and what's happening there. I'm now at, uh, at MSF office just 150 meters away from El Shifa Hospital. As I am, I am evacuated from the north to Gaza City with my family as our colleagues to the are evacuated from the north. And the number of the people who are in our facilities are close to 300. I know you're not at the hospital right now, as you said, but can you describe what it's like there? The situation is unbelievable. So bombing... Military tank bombing, as you hear now. Can you hear the voice? Those are explosions? Of the bombing. Yeah, the explosion. How close are they to you? 
Mohamed? Mohamed, are you all right? Yeah. Okay. What was that sound? That's bump. Are you some? Are you? Are you? Is it close to you? Are you safe? As safe as possible. Uh, I'm, I mean, it's in the safe in our office, but the the bombing is too close, too too close to to uh, our office. Actually, our, our area it's like like a battlefield uh, zone. You know, bullets, attacks, action, bomb, air force attacks. We know people were forced to leave the Al Shifa Hospital. It, where have they gone? How many people were there and had to leave? Actually, yesterday, yesterday when I was at Al Shifa Hospital, the number of the people who are flocked or evacuated from the beginning of the war in Shifa Hospital was the same. But today, when I saw the people who are moving. Yeah, it was a thousand of people, thousands of people. Even I saw a, a, pa- uh, a patient in the bed, they are moving, you know, the families with the kids, you know, moving and walking on the street, elevating and raising a, a white flag. It seems to be getting closer, Mohammed. Yeah, yeah. Where are you staying in the building to be safe? I'm at the balcony, but... You know. You're on the balcony? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the only place I can the only place I can I can have a, a good connection. Well, I, I think you need to go to safety, Mohammed. No, it's safe. It's safe. Uh, there's, there's no safe. There is no safe place at all in Gaza. <laughs> so when I when I was uh, in an interview with a few hours ago, mm-hmm. uh, the police penetrating my own window. Of the, of the place you're in now. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, f- a few a few hours ago. Yeah. Every every moment is dangerous. Clearly, um, we know that uh, Gaza Medic Voices estimates uh, that close to two hundred healthcare workers have been killed in, in Gaza. Yeah. So, what is yeah. it like for you and your colleagues? Have you lost colleagues? No, actually, we didn't lose colleagues, but our colleagues lost one of one or two or even more from their family mm-hmm. members. But so close. Give me a minute. For me, uh, as Mohammed, I, uh, the, uh, the first day of the war, he attacked the last floor of the building that I live in. So I moved with my kids and my family to uh, to Shifa. But our work also is a humanitarian job. So I create a team with twelve nurses. And two emergency doctors from the people who are evacuated to another facility. So we went to Shifa and started giving our hand to the team there because I heard that there's a shortage of medical stuff and shortage of supplies. So we got a confirmation to send these items in our stock to the, to the Minister of Health or Al Shifa Hospital. Mohammed, I have to so, I have to ask you. Yeah. How can you stay that calm when those explosions are so close to you? We are feel like like we are really exhausted. Really, really exhausted. We don't care to stay alive. We saw children 
and innocent people killed, killed, a whole family destroyed, a massacre. Some of some of my friends, some of my friends, they lost their whole family. So it's our destiny as Palestinians to be in this circumstances or or this this, this situation. But we keep going because we are strong enough. We are still strong. How old are your children, Mohammed? So I have two daughters and two sons. So the or the oldest one is ten, and the next one, my son, he's eight. The second daughter, she's five, and the last one is two. What are they saying? The ones who know what's going on. They are the same, the same feeling. They are exhausted too. They ask me about the bomb. And I, I was explaining to them that it's a firework. Mm-hmm. And then I say that there's music sometimes, a music tune. I was trying all the, all the ideas to explain to them that mm-hmm. it's not, not a war. We heard yesterday about these four-hour humanitarian pauses that were going to come through. Have you seen any impact of those? Or have you seen them happen? No, there is no there is no pauses. There is no pauses at all. They attack the people when they when they are moving to the safe place. There is no safe place. They are attacking kids, they are attacking families, they are attacking an innocent people. What? So my message is to stop killing those innocent people. To stop that crazy war. Right now. Mohammed, thank you. We're going to let you be with your family now. Thank you. Oh, welcome. Thank you very much. Please take care. Mohammed Al Hawadri is a Palestinian nurse working with Doctors Without Borders in Gaza City. That's where we reached him. This week, some envelopes bound for elections offices in a number of U.S. states did not contain ballots. They contained letters, and in some cases, a mysterious white substance. Police have identified that substance as fentanyl. It's not clear who sent the letters, but elections workers say they're just the latest in a series of continued attempts to intimidate them. Julie Wise is the elections director for King County, Washington, one of the offices that received a letter. We reached her in Des Moines, Washington. Julie, were you bracing yourself and your staffers for something like this to happen? Unfortunately, yes, we were. Uh, We saw the same attempt in the August primary to um, deter us with a letter that had white powder substance in it. And we know that the climate over the last three years was a clear and coordinated effort to undermine election and election administrators that we have seen the tone change. Um, amongst voters, and we had been preparing ourselves for uh, threats and incidences like this. So when one of your staff members opened this envelope, just take me to that moment, what happened? On Wednesday, the day after Election Day, 
around 11 a.m., one of the team members opened a regular white envelope and um, immediately detected powder coming out of it. They followed our mail safety protocols, which is to immediately isolate the piece of mail by covering it with a bin. Then they um, deployed the fire alarm. And then at that time, fire and hazmat arrived on scene Mm -hmm. and uh, investigated were able to detect that there was, in fact, trace amounts of fentanyl in the uh, envelope, the powder in which um, the team member saw. The staff members that came in contact with the envelope were thankfully safe and sound. And uh, within about three hours, we were able to re-enter our facility after it Mm -hmm. had been professionally cleaned and get right back to work, which is what we did. You mentioned the climate. Certainly we're aware of that. But but why do you think your office in particular is being targeted and targeted in this way? What's the message someone is trying and failing to send? You know, now we've seen similar envelopes across several states here um, in the United States. And so um, I will leave it to law enforcement and authorities to determine um, why they chose certain jurisdictions. Um, what I know is that you know King County has 1.4 million registered voters. We are the 12th largest county in the country. We have been vote by mail um, since 2009, and uh, led as the largest vote by mail jurisdiction for you know uh, many many years. Um, and since have seen more states like California and larger counties um, move to vote by mail as well. So we're learning day by day. It's more widespread than um, I think. We initially saw in the August primary and earlier this general election. Just tell us about the people you work with, your staff. What draws them to this work? The group of election administrators, and I've been in this business for 23 years, and I can really say this about election administrators that I've met here in Washington State and specifically in King County, uh, Seattle, Washington, but across this country. Election administrators are the most determined, resilient passionate individuals that I've ever met that are called to this work to be a civil servant because they love their community and their neighbors, and they want to ensure that they have their voices heard. They believe that democracy is at its finest when all voices are heard. They are um, a fabulous group of people who are human beings at the end of the day who are parents, who are your neighbors, who are in line with you at the grocery store or to pick up the kids from school. These are mothers and grandmothers and fathers and uncles, and and they are called to this work because they believe in democracy. You mentioned you were able to get back to work, though it took three hours, of course, to make sure everything was safe, but it must weigh on them. So how how does it affect them? Absolutely, it weighs on them. These these individuals want to get home safe and sound to their family, and they just want to do their job. Um, and it is emotionally and mentally taxing uh, to have threats like this, to be continued to be bullied and intimidated. But what I will also say is that they're not going to be deterred. They're not going to back down. They believe in democracy. They know it matters too much. Their safety is my number one priority. So making sure that they have the resources and tools to be supported in all the ways is, of course, of utmost um, importance to me and to my leadership team. You've faced this before personally during your campaign for re-election to to your role. 
what kinds of messages were you dealing with? My opponent is um, is elect an election denier um, and someone who who does not believe in the results of the 2020 election and who um, does not believe that our elections are being um, conducted accurately, securely, you know, transparently, and um, and so I saw repeatedly through this campaign an attack on um, my mental capacity, my physical appearance, my gender. Videos created that continue to undermine elections. And, and sadly, what I saw is uh, folks calling me a traitor, uh, oh. folks um, uh, encouraging me to kill myself. Oh. Um, and um, that, that certainly has taken a toll on me um, and my family. Um, but I, I've been in this business for 23 years. I'm not going to be deterred from doing um, what I think is critically important for this c- country, which is democracy. How do you prepare for 2024? We've been preparing for 2024 for years now. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to continue to make sure that our staff is safe. And that includes training, like active shooter training and um, male safety protocols. Um, But we're ready to go. We're excited. We could run the presidential election tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And we have prepared for this. And and voters should feel confident in their election system. And if they have questions about it, they should seek facts from election administrators. I hope, Julie, you never have to use those skills, that training that you're putting into place. I hope you don't have to use that. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Julie Wise is the elections director in King County, Washington. We reached her in Des Moines, Washington. To say the echidna is one of nature's most curious anomalies would be an understatement. To say the echidna is a freaky little weirdo would be rude, (laughs) but also an understatement. The mammal lays eggs, nurses its young sans nipples, and the males have a four-headed penis. Scientists, and our team at As It Happens, are fascinated by them for obvious reasons, which is why James Kempton and his team were so ecstatic when their trail cameras captured the first ever photographic evidence of Attenborough's long-beaked echidna, named after Sir David, which was believed to be extinct. James Kempton is a biologist at the University of Oxford. He led the echidna expedition to the Cyclops Mountains in Indonesia. We reached him in London. James, how does one react when when they see the first ever photographic evidence of Attenborough's long-beaked echidna? Well, that does actually depend on uh, how hard you've looked for it. <laughs> and, uh, and you've looked pretty looked hard. Very, <laughs> we looked pretty hard. Uh, three and a half years of planning for this expedition, four weeks of grueling fieldwork, and after four weeks of grueling fieldwork, no pictures of echidna. It wasn't until the final SD card that we collected from the uh, final camera of the final day of our final ascent of the Cyclops Mountains that we found those pictures. So 
I was going to say joy, but it's actually intense relief first and then joy. <laughs> and what's the space you're in when you are looking at those images? Are you are you back at a hotel? Are you just paint a picture of that for us? Yeah, so, yeah. So we so uh, I was only the only remaining scientist left in uh, Indonesian New Guinea. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at my desk in my bedroom. I noticed something a little odd at the bottom of the file explorer window picture that seemed a little unusual. I clicked on it and there was the echidna. And I ran out of the room to the living room where my Papuan colleagues were and said, we found it, we found it. And uh, we shared in the joy together. Uh, They knew exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No question there. You talked about how difficult uh, it was just to get to that point. Tell our listeners what those difficulties were because, uh, yeah, we're not talking about just a difficult climb or, or bad weather. No, we were beset by a lot of difficulties. So there were earthquakes. Uh, a team member caught malaria. Um, terrible insect bites. Uh, one member broke his hand uh, in two places. Um, probably worst of all, one of the team members had a leech in his eye for no. 33 hours. This was this was Gison Morib, a fantastic student from the local university, Unchen. And he had a leech in his eye for 33 hours, uh, which resisted... <laughs> Um, tweezers, salt water, no. medical saline, and we had to get him back to hospital in the end, they... where it finally succumbed to ethanol. How are they doing right now? He is he is fine uh, because he uh, got the ethanol in the eye, the leech came off, and he came straight back on the expedition. Wow. He's an impressive man. Yes, certainly. The whole team sounds, sounds pretty impressive. Are you a superstitious person, though? Because as you listed all of those things, I thought... At some point, you might say, maybe we're not supposed to do this. <laughs> well, um, we were absolutely supposed to do it. And, and the yeah. reason I, I can say that very confidently is because we had coll- we collaborated with um, the, the indigenous people in the Cyclops yeah. Mountains for over two years to achieve this. And we had um, their absolute consent to do this work. And they supported it all along. So uh, I know that uh, this was an expedition well done. Oh, absolutely. What, what what did they tell you about what echidnas mean to them, the importance in their culture? Well, they have a, a great folklore associated with echidnas. Perhaps the most interesting story, the one that stands out the most, is that the echidna plays a part in a conflict resolution ritual traditionally. So if there's a conflict between clans, a member of one clan is sent to find an echidna, and if a member of the other clan is sent to find a marlin, a sea fish, both species are really hard to find, can take decades. Um, and so when they are found, there is this great sense of a conflict resolved mm-hmm. through great effort. Um, uh, and that, so that's the tradi- one of the traditional roles the echidna plays, or Attenborough's Longbeat echidna plays in the community of Yongsu Sapare, uh, one of the indigenous communities of the Cyclops. That's quite beautiful. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, it is. it is, especially during this time of great conflict. It is. Uh, we spoke, uh, you know, we've spoken about echidnas on this program. Our listeners will know here on As It Happens. And we reminded them in the intro a little bit of about what makes them so interesting. You know, they, they lay eggs, nurse without nipples, four-headed penis, always grabs headlines, <laughs> certainly. Uh, but just what does the long-beaked echidna look like? You've, you've got to imagine a hybrid animal that has mm-hmm. the spines of a hedgehog, the snout of an anteater, and the feet of a mole. And then you have something that looks a bit like an echidna. And in total, there are just five species, including Attenborough's long-beat echidna, 
that preserve this unique and fragile 200 million years of evolutionary history. And that's why it's so important we've rediscovered Attenborough's long beat echidna, because otherwise it would just be four species left preserving that evolutionary history, which if it went extinct would be a great tragedy. What, you know, in the photographs, is it just, you know, are they just hanging out? What what kind of expressions do they have? <laughs> Um, most of the time they're walking along uh, trails that they and other animals have made many of the locations that we that we worked at have never seen the tread of human feet before Uh, and so we were following animal paths not human paths and so often we set our trail cameras along these paths and so the echidnas that we saw would have been walking along going to forage in the undergrowth and prove under the soil where they feed on uh, worms and other mm-hmm. underground invertebrates. And if you go to expeditioncyclops.org, you can see the photos of those mm-hmm. echidna and other photos we took during the expedition. A pleasure speaking with you, James. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. James Kempton is a biologist at the University of Oxford. He's in London. Now, let's listen to the beginning of the movie Top Gun Maverick. You good? Yeah, I'm good. Oops, that, that, that was the end of Top Gun Maverick. Sorry about that if you haven't seen it. Now you know that Maverick and the guy who hated Maverick but then liked Maverick survive and people cheer. Is that a spoiler? I mean, did anyone think the movie might end with people booing at Maverick because he flew his plane wrong? No. And if you did see Top Gun Maverick, do you even remember the plot? Don't just say planes. That's not a plot. My point is you you can't spoil Top Gun Maverick. And pulling a gun on someone who threatens to spoil it is an overreaction. A police officer in Sydney, Australia named Dominic Francis Gaynor has been suspended and sentenced to community service after what his lawyer refers to as skylarking and tomfoolery gone awry. He's referring to an incident in May when another officer jokingly threatened to spoil Top Gun Maverick. Mr. Gaynor told him not to. And then he had a real eureka moment in terms of skylarking and tomfoolery. He said, I'll shoot you, and trained his gun on his colleague for a full five seconds. Just to remind you, this is five seconds. That is too long. And I may just be a simple country radio host, but to me, that constitutes neither skylarking nor tomfoolery. And the judge obviously agreed which is about as predictable an ending as Maverick doing the cool thing in the plane that everyone cheers about. Sorry, spoiler alert. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Late last month, Ahmed Abu Al-Jedian became a father, but he couldn't be there for his wife or hold his newborn baby. They were both stuck in Gaza while he was in Canada trying to bring them home. Well, this morning at Pearson Airport in Toronto, his nightmare ended when his wife emerged from the arrivals gate with their daughter in her arms. They're among dozens of Canadians or relatives of residents who've been able to escape Gaza. Hundreds more are still stuck there. We reached Ahmed Abu Al-Jedian in Brantford, Ontario. Ahmed, how are your wife and your daughter, Yara and Sula, doing? We just arrived home. She give, My wife gave her a, a quick bath and uh, feeding her. And they are st- starting to relax and be relieved after that all hard time and hard effort they yeah. made and that long travel. Yeah, they are happy. She, my wife, like said, I, I, I didn't. I did not wake up yet. I, I, I don't know if I'm in Canada. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't know if she's in Canada yet. Well, they've been through right. so much. But how are you doing? What was it like to finally to get to hug them both? For me, to know my daughter, I touching her, smelling her, um, hugging her. It was. I got my heart. You got your heart. What did they say to you? What did she say to you, your wife at the airport, in those moments? She said, I am very, very happy to be with you, Ahmed. Even we are, if even if I left my family back home and they are very dangerous, but mm-hmm. hopefully we can do something for them later on. But I'm really happy to be with you and hopefully we can do something for our families later, I said for sure. Yeah. Who is left behind? Her mom, her dad, my brothers, all of, all of them, all of them is there. Where are, where are your family members living? They are residing in the Jabalia camp, mm-hmm. and it's gone, like, it's it's deleted, basically. So they ran to the school, they ran to the hospital, they ran to the south, they ran, yeah, all the time, all the time. Especially when I have a brother is blind, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard. Yeah. But Canada is very, very humanity country. Canada will never leave them alone, especially those cases. I, I I know it very well. I know Canada. I I had a very good things from Canada, and I know they will not leave them alone. You are a permanent resident, but but your wife is not. So, uh, how how did you go about getting the government to agree to help you and bring your family? Our MP here in Brentford, Larry Brock, was a big and big, I mean what I'm saying, a big, big, big part, helping. He treats me like my dad, which is, I'm telling you, the government Canada, it's my family, second family here in Canada. I came to Canada by myself, and they are my family. They are, basically. Your wife had to give birth uh in those very difficult conditions, uh, unimaginable conditions for most of us. We've talked to doctors at the hospitals in Gaza about how difficult it is for them. But what did she tell you about what it was like for her to give birth there? She said, can you imagine you doing the birth with no painkiller? And it's not about the painkiller, but you do it without painkiller. And you don't know if you will be surviving after one minute right so anytime can the bombardment come and kill right in a spot so scare and doing birth 
and pain and all together all together making the situation is hard i am hoping to not remember that and i'm trying to not to to let her try to forget it it's hard to forget he will she will never forget it mm-hmm. but try to change her mood you know to make her happy i know she she can't forget it i know she have her mom there she have her family there i understand if we, and i'm telling you again canada will never leave them alone uh, i i i will still say it always being here and watching everything unfold there when you're far away, it can be much harder in some cases because it you know. It's is, a, so, what was it, it like for you knowing what was happening? Like it is, it is it's unbelievable. So it's frustrating to to don't know if your family live or die. That's a that's the hardest point, and you are preparing yourself just to get the news about your family. Any person of them died, seems I got from my uncles. I have 25 from my uncle and cousins. Mm-hmm. Gone. Um, but You I, lost I, 25 I, family members? Did I? Did yeah. I I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, but but, but I wish I, I, I could do something in that time for them. It's not easy for me to do something. I did my best, and I'm doing my best. And I, I, as I said, Canada, it's a humanity call. It's a humanity country. And I encourage the government to do something for the people, even if a refugee. I really encourage them, and that will be really helpful, really helpful. Your wife is is clearly a very strong person. What was it like holding Sila for the first time? It just, it just, it just. Okay, when I came to Canada, I have just dream to have family, to have baby. I love it. I love kids, and now the 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 kids is here. It's it's mine, <laughs> you know. It's like it's my daughter. I am a dad finally. I am a dad for real, eh? <laughs> that's that something is not. It's not. It's not something easy for me to 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 believe it. But I did believe it today because I have it. Ahmad, I'm I'm very glad you're all back together. Um, please, so please uh, tell Yara. We hope she's settling in all right and that she is very strong. But let her know. Thank you, thank, thank you. you, and thank you for you, for the radio, CBC, for oh. the Canada, for the government, for every helping all the people. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Ahmed. We reached Ahmed Abu Al Jedian in Brantford, Ontario. Even in the darkest of times, there is always light. That's the kind of hopeful message we try to keep in mind when we're faced with adversity to help us imagine that things will get better. And it's a message that many will reflect on this weekend as they mark Diwali. The Festival of Lights is celebrated by Hindus, Sikhs, Jains, and other communities all around the world. Tonight, As It Happens, is marking Diwali with a reading of Lights for Gita. The book tells the story of Gita, a young girl who's celebrating her first Diwali in Canada, But as the day draws near, Gita starts to worry the holiday won't be the same in Canada as it was at home in New Delhi. This is Lights for Gita, read for us by the CBC's Manjula Selvaraja. 
Geetha pulled her hat down over her ears as she stepped off the school bus. Diwali, she whispered. Today's really and truly Diwali. But nothing in the November gloom seemed like Diwali. Today, New Delhi would be glowing with celebration. All her aunts, uncles, and cousins would be together at her grandparents' house. They'd be laughing, talking, and exchanging sweets with friends and neighbors. In the evening, they'd light diyas to honor the goddess Lakshmi who bought prosperity and happiness. And then, fireworks. The whole city would be brilliant with fireworks. Geetha looked anxiously at the dark clouds. Please, please don't rain. Papa had said, I'll be home early with fireworks for our first Diwali in our new home. It wouldn't be like Diwali at her grandparents. Still, Mommy had made their favorite sweets, golden peras, spiral jalebis, and she had let Geetha invite five school friends to help celebrate. Geetha had wanted to invite her whole class, but you had to be quiet in an apartment. Not outside, though. Fireworks, lots of them. That's what Diwali was all about, the festival of lights. Geetha glared at the gray sky before racing up the creaky stairs to their apartment. She flung her arms around her mother. Papa was home early, just as he'd promised. Did you get the fireworks, Papa? Yes, I got them, he said slowly. But Geetha... Diwali isn't just fireworks. There's... Show me, Papa. Where are they? Gently, Papa turned Geetha towards the window. A large drop splashed against the glass. Then another and another. It won't last long, said Geetha, her voice wobbly. The forecast says freezing rain tonight, said Papa. Never mind. We'll have the fireworks tomorrow. But I promised my friends. We'll turn on all the lights, said Mommy, and light the diyas. You and your friends will have a lovely party. Geetha blinked back her tears. Come, said her mother. Change into your new dress. Then we'll light the diyas. Geetha and her mother set the little clay pots along the windowsills and around the room. Needles of ice stung the windows. Freezing rain on Diwali? How could such a place ever be home? Last year, Diwali had been warm and joyful. She and her cousins had startled everyone with noisy crackers called little rascals. They'd whispered in the prayer room as the incense smoke curled upwards and the grown-ups chanted. Grandmother had told them stories of Prince Ram and his wife Sita and of their homecoming on Diwali. And in the evening, cone-spouted fountains of fire, Catherine wheels whirled, and hissing rockets burst into dazzling showers of color. A sudden gust rattled the window. Gita stuck out her tongue. You can't get in and you won't spoil my party. 
she gave a hard twist to the wisp of cotton wick. Mummy, bangles tingling, filled the dias with mustard oil. As she finished, the phone rang. Geetha heard the murmur of her mother's voice, the click of the receiver, and then more ringing. She shook the box of matches impatiently as her mother came back. Can I light the first one? Mummy just smiled and smoothed Geetha's hair. That was Jenny and Helga. It's too icy to drive. They can't come. The phone rang again. Geetha ran to her room. She burrowed into bed and jerked the covers over her head. I hate this place, she sobbed. Mummy lifted back the covers and gently hugged Geetha. Amy hasn't called, and she does live nearby. Geetha pulled away and blew her nose. Geetha, said Mummy softly, Diwali is really about filling the darkness with light. Fireworks can't do it for us. We must do it ourselves. Mummy's smile was bright, but also sad, like grandmother's smile when they had said goodbye. For a long moment, Gita sat still. Then she managed a watery smile. Let's light the dias. One by one, golden flames quivered and sprang to life. The warm fragrance of mustard oil filled the room. Just as Geetha lit the last wick, the electric lights flickered on, off, on again. Then all the lights in the apartment, in all the houses, even the street lamps, died. Darkness on Diwali, Geetha's throat tightened. Then she began to laugh. In the sudden rush of darkness, their dias glowed, bright, brighter, brightest, filling the living room with light. We beat the darkness, we beat the darkness, Geetha clapped her hands. Lakshmi will come for sure, we'll have wonderful luck, said Mommy. Geetha ran to the window. The dia's reflection made it seem as if there were another shining room outside. She sang softly. Drops of freezing rain glittered as they flew past. Slowly, the headlights of a car came down the street and stopped in front of their building. It's Amy, shouted Geetha. Papa started downstairs with the flashlight. Geetha ran ahead in the bouncing circle of light. She opened the front door. Careful, it's icy, called Papa. Geetha took a few cautious steps. She stopped, eyes wide. The whole world glistened. The sidewalks, every branch, every twig, the lamppost, even the blades of grass. In the dark city, only their windows blazed with the steady glow of Dia's. The ice, reflecting their light, sparkled and danced like fireworks. Amy's voice brought her back. Geetha, tomorrow, we can go sliding. It'll be like flying. Geetha's eyes shone. 
she'd have to write her grandparents about this Diwali in her new home. Hey, Amy, let's play hide-and-seek while the power's still out. Geetha took one last look at the light singing in the heart of the ice. Come on, she shouted. Race you upstairs. The Toronto Tabla Ensemble with Walk, and before that, the CBC's Manjula Selvaraja, reading from the picture book Lights for Gita, written by Rachna Gilmore and illustrated by Alice Priestley. It's published by Second Story Press. The UNHCR is warning that an unimaginable humanitarian crisis is unfolding in Sudan and saying that so far the world has been scandalously silent. In mid-April, war erupted between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. Aid groups say six million people have been forced from their homes and thousands have been killed. Now there are new reports that the RSF has captured cities and army bases in Darfur. And the group and allied militias are being accused of ethnic violence and killings. Stephanie Hoffman is an outreach coordinator with MSF. She's across the border from Darfur in Adre, Chad. Stephanie, how has the situation at the border changed over the last several weeks? Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a massive increase in the amount of refugees coming from Darfur uh, into eastern Chad, whereas in October, we were seeing about 100 or maybe 150 people per day. It was quite stable. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, we've had anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 people coming across the border every single day. In one week, we had more than 10,000 people arrive, so there's been a significant increase in the amount of refugees arriving. What is fueling that increase? The increase in refugees is being fueled by the ongoing fighting in El Janina, a city that is about 40 kilometers away from the border. So there's been an increase in fighting, violence. As a result, people are fleeing because their homes are being uh, attacked, their families are being attacked, and so they're fleeing to the nearest safe area, which is in Adre in Chad. You, you work in these in these camps. You certainly know what it is like there. Can you give our listeners a sense of the kind of conditions that are, that are there? Yeah, the conditions are uh, extremely problematic. Um, there's been over 420,000 refugees that have arrived in this region in the past six months. These camps are informal. So they're not, uh, there's no pre-constructed shelters. There's nothing like that. People are living in... Um, huts that they're able to build from straw or plastic that they're collecting. There's not enough water, there's not enough food, there's not enough healthcare facilities, there's no mosquito nets, there's really not even the basics for someone to be able to survive. What are some of the stories that the refugees are sharing with you? 
We're seeing mostly women and children that are arriving um, and really a lot, a lot of children, uh, families that have been separated during the violence that have been fleeing as quickly as they possibly could. So we have a lot of people that aren't sure if their family members are still alive, um, what has happened to them. We've got most people showing up, pointing to their clothing, just saying, this is all I have with me. We had to flee um, in the middle of the night at a moment's notice. My neighbor's house was bombed and mine caught on fire. And so we've arrived with absolutely nothing. One of the other things that that uh, has changed, as I understand it, is that you're treating physical injuries, different kinds of physical injuries now. You've seen a, a shift on that front as well. Can you describe that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in the past few weeks, uh, in November, end of September, we weren't seeing as many injury people being injured arriving at the border. Mm-hmm. And definitely in the past two weeks, we've also had a huge spike in people requiring um, advanced medical care and surgical interventions. Uh, most of these people arriving from Sudan have spent three days walking to arrive in Chad. And they're not only arriving at the formal border point in Adre, they're also arriving to the north and to the south. The border is porous. And so we are getting calls from very remote health centers that do not at all have the capacity um, to take in these patients, telling us that there are patients with gunshot wounds or wounds from explosions. So we've been picking people up wherever we can when we get the information to bring them back to the surgical hospital. So there's been a big increase in uh, patients arriving and people arriving with serious injuries, also um, general exhaustion and dehydration from walking for three days. Do the teams have the supplies to treat that many people and those kinds of injuries? Uh, We're definitely doing the best that we can. Uh, MSF has a very large team here. Um, We have over 1,500 staff uh, between international and local staff in this area. Um, But I think everyone is stretched pretty thin. Um, Beyond the injuries that are just arriving now, there's alarming rates of malnutrition and malaria in the camps in this whole region because there is not enough food and there are no mosquito nets. Um, The refugees that have been here for months already who perhaps weren't part of the acute violence happening in the last few weeks, there's already a huge burden on the healthcare system from from these people. And so on top of that, you add the increase in uh, in people requiring advanced medical care. Um, it's very difficult to to keep up with the needs of the population. In the absence of a ceasefire, and we know talks in Saudi Arabia this month did not achieve a ceasefire, certainly. What are your yeah. concerns as things continue Um, My concerns are that this part of Chad, which is already vulnerable and very rural, um, is not going to be able to absorb this increase in population already. It's impossible for this area to absorb this this population. Uh, And the actors that are on the ground, not only MSF, but there's other actors, everyone is stretched very thin and there's not enough support for this crisis. There's not only the crisis in Sudan, but there's also this massive refugee crisis in eastern Chad. Um, And there needs to be a lot more support financially, other actors, basically every type of of service is needed here from water and sanitation to food distribution to healthcare, mental health, everything is needed here and there's just not enough, not enough support for it. Aid groups are, you know, begging the world to not look away from what is unfolding there. I know you're a Canadian as well. Uh, We have listeners across Canada, but but elsewhere as well. I, I wonder what you want listeners wherever they are, to take away from this conversation and what people are experiencing there? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy that uh, that we're able to do this interview, this call. Um, first of all, for people to be aware of the ongoing crisis in in Sudan, also in Eastern Chad. I don't think it's always easy or evident to have news in Canada of what's happening in this part of the world. And I think if Canadians knew what a malnourished child really looked like and what they go through, they would fully support more support for this crisis, and they would also be pushing our government to to react more. I think that uh, the international refugee system is based on responsibility sharing and neighboring states, such as Chad in this case, shouldn't be the only ones responsible and reacting to this crisis. Canada in particular has a history of responding to refugee emergencies with prioritized resettlement. And I think in this case, Canada should be increasing its acceptance of Sudanese refugees in response to this crisis. Stephanie, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was MSF Outreach Coordinator Stephanie Hoffman in Audrey Chad. The emergency room at St. Paul's Hospital in Saskatoon has been so crowded, there's been fear it could cause an emergency. This week, the sheer number of patients lining the hospital's hallways prompted an inspection from the city's fire department, followed by a meeting with hospital administrators. The situation seems to have reached a breaking point, but nurses say it has been critical for weeks. Tracy Zambori is the president of the Saskatchewan Union of Nurses. We reached her in Stoughton, Saskatchewan. Tracy, if we were to walk into the ER at St. Paul's Hospital this week, what would we see? You, you would see chaos. You would see people sitting on the floor, laying on the floor. You'd see beds lined up in the hallway where they've just got oxygen tanks hanging off the side of the bed. You would see just utter chaos. And if we were going there as patients, what would all of what you just described there mean for the kind of care we'd be getting? It would mean that you would likely be waiting for hours on end. It would mean that the care would be chaotic. It, and, you know, the worst of it is is that you might not even get care at all because we are in such a nursing crisis mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan that it could take hours and hours for someone to actually see you. You might see in one shift more agency nurses than you would see registered nurses that are actually employed there. And you would see the fact that we are so short on doctors that in Saskatchewan that people don't have primary health care. So they're ending up having to come into the emergency room. And it's there has been nothing to change that. We've been calling out for change from the government for going over two years now, and nothing has changed. So the situation is just getting incredibly worse. And when you heard that the fire department had to be called in? Well, we're not surprised, unfortunately. We had seen pictures of, of beds up against the different emergency exits. We're not surprised because nothing has been done to stem the tide of what's been going on in Saskatchewan since before COVID, and COVID tore the bandage right off of it. The the extreme nursing shortage, the fact that people cannot get care where they live, that we have rural and remote communities that their health care is having to go on bypass. I mean, we just did a survey uh, of our members. 90% of them are reporting where they know that patient safety has been put at jeopardy because they can't do safe patient care. That's pretty shocking statistics coming. And we're spending in Saskatchewan about $48 million this year and more to come next year on agency nurses. We're not doing anything in Saskatchewan 
to fix this issue. The provincial health minister, Everett Hindley, you may have heard, has called the overcrowding, quote, not acceptable, end quote. He says it needs to be addressed. He's been meeting weekly, he says, with paramedics and the Saskatchewan Health Authority. Clearly, you don't feel that enough is is being done. So what what should Saskatchewan specifically do, you know, tomorrow uh, and other provinces to, to fix this quickly? Well, what they need to do is they need to listen to registered nurses and the other healthcare professionals in the system. They need to actually create a nursing task force where we've got nursing unions, nursing educators, nursing legislators, and other stakeholders. In Saskatchewan, we have two provincial nursing officers. We need to create a table that's got decision-making authority to be able to speak to registered nurses, to be able to ask them, why are you reverting to casual? Because, you know, an agency nurse can makes $120 an hour. They're reverting to casual. They're going to get that kind of wage. They're going to work for two weeks and make the same amount of money they can make in a month. And when you ask, why have they reverted casual? They're going to tell you it's because the workplace is absolute chaos. We cannot continue to function in it because the moral distress is causing me to lose my mental health. We're going to hear that, and we need to have the will and the way to change the workplace to listen to what registered nurses have to say because throughout this whole uh, nightmare that healthcare workers are, are living in right now, they have not been listened to by the provincial government. But if they're going, I wonder, is that a temporary measure, though, going to agency nurses because of the shortage of healthcare staff that we're seeing in many other places uh, outside right, of Saskatchewan as well? measure. Right. That's so, right. It's a temporary measure, but that would never be anything that the nursing task force would. The nursing task force would be there to talk to these members that have reverted to casual and are working for the agency. And we're going to ask them, why? Why did you do that? And what can we do in the system to course correct to get you to come back? Mm-hmm. When they say that, you know, when the health minister says they've been speaking to the Saskatchewan Health Authority, I mean, are there no voices of nurses in that authority, someone surely must be speaking to people who are working on the front lines. Not that we're aware of. They're not speaking to nurses and asking them any questions about what they need to change? They're not speaking with the union now. We do have meetings. We have meetings upon meetings. We've been meeting with the with the uh, health authority and with the government for forever, two, at least two years on and off. But I'll tell you, the last time we met with the health minister, all he wanted to talk about was positivity and how we have to have a positive message. They didn't want to hear at all the true reality, the truth of what's going on at the front lines. And now they're seeing it play out. The emergency room in St. Paul's Hospital is so crowded and there's improper beds, unsafe care happening in hallways that the fire marshal has to be called in. Tracy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Tracy Zambori is the president of the Saskatchewan Union of Nurses. We reached her in Stoughton, Saskatchewan. She is a legendary singer and actor whose career has spanned six decades. She's an EGOT winner who has played Fanny Bryce and a Fokker, 
And now Barbara Streisand is sharing her story in a feverishly anticipated memoir. This weekend in a Canadian broadcast exclusive interview, Ms. Streisand will talk with Pia Chattopadhyay on the Sunday magazine. She'll address the misconceptions about herself that she's most keen to correct, her fraught relationship with her mother, and unfounded notions about her ego. I'm certainly not a diva. What's a diva anyway? A diva is an opera singer who has an entourage following her, as I've seen in the movies whenever they portray divas. It's just not me. I'm down to earth. I'm... I like simplicity. I don't, uh, I mean, simplicity, nothing simple. I like to be quiet. I've never relived my life before. I never listen to my music. I don't watch my movies. I like to be with my grandchildren and my son, my husband, you know, good friends, like most people. Hmm. You talk about being described as a diva, one assumption that comes up throughout your your life, but in this book, is that you have this, you know, quote, obsession to take control of whatever projects you're involved with. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you see when people say, oh, she's controlling, what, what, what you're really after in those moments. Well, the different perception, the language, the descriptions of men versus women. And it was a speech I did in 1992. Language gives us an insight into the way women are viewed in a male-dominated society. And so, though I'm sure this would hold true for women in positions of power in any field, a man is commanding while a woman is demanding. A man is forceful, but a woman is pushy. A man is uncompromising. I mean, that's, you know, to be heralded, while a woman is a ball breaker. A man is a perfectionist, but a woman's a pain in the ass. He's assertive. She's aggressive. He strategizes while she manipulates. You see how the words are descriptive of what is in the brain of the male-dominated society. She, he shows leadership while she's controlling. He's committed. She's obsessed. He's persevering. She's relentless. He sticks to his guns while she's stubborn. You see what I mean? I mean, I wrote that in 1992, and this is more than... 30 years, 30 years. 30 years. Oh, my God. It's 30 years later. And we're still talking about a woman who wants control. It's really such a shame, isn't it? Barbara Streisand speaking with Pia Chattopadhyay in a Canadian broadcast exclusive interview. You can hear that full conversation on The Sunday Magazine this Sunday morning at 9, 9.30 in Newfoundland on CBC Radio and the CBC Listen app. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.